Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. Business Trip explores the business models and origin stories of the most interesting companies in psychedelics. I'm Greg Kubin, alongside my co-host, Matthias Serebrinsky. In today's episode, we discuss the laws and regulations around psychedelic medicine. Our guest is Matt Zorn, an attorney at Yetter Coleman. Matt has expertise in DEA law, especially pertaining to psychedelics. Matt is currently challenging the DEA's decision to schedule five psychedelic compounds that weren't previously illegal. He has also argued against the DEA in a right-to-try case to allow patients with cancer to access psilocybin. And he was a co-lead on a landmark case against the DEA related to cannabis scheduling and research. Matt also writes the drug policy newsletter called On Drugs, which is linked in our show notes. Really, it's no stretch to say that Matt is an expert on all things drug policy, IP, and DEA law. In today's episode, Matt explains how psychedelic companies currently operate and how they will do so moving forward according to FDA and DEA guidelines. We discuss how drug scheduling works and what psychedelic companies can do to increase their odds of approval. We also ask Matt about psychedelic IP and his perspective on classic compounds versus new chemical entities. Let's get to the episode. The episode. The episode. Matt, welcome to the Business Trip Podcast. Really excited to get legal with you today. Would be great to start off with a bit about your own path of what has brought you to the psychedelic space today. Well, first off, Greg, happy to be here. Excited to be here. Matthias, great to be here. So question number one, what brought me to the psychedelic space? My first exposure to psychedelics was I took a seminar course in law school. So this is about a decade ago on drugs, law, and policy. And as part of the course, we had to write a seminar paper. And what I ended up doing was going back in time and reading about some of the cases. And I started reading about the MDMA scheduling proceedings that happened in the 80s. And that kind of opened up a Pandora's box of interest. And so that, that kind of got me in sort of interested generally. And this was about 10 years ago. And, you know, there really wasn't a psychedelic space. Obviously, MAPS was around, but honestly, not that much. I mean, I, I know Drug Policy Alliance was doing work on sort of the decrim side, but there really wasn't a psychedelic space. And, and I didn't enter the psychedelic space. I went and worked uh, at a law firm in New York, a uh, big law firm, got excellent training and as a litigator, an IP litigator. It's what I still do today, most of the time. And I didn't get back into what I'll call sort of cannabis and psychedelics law. About three years ago, I saw Sue Sisley present at South by Southwest. She was presenting at South by Southwest and she had a legal problem. She wanted to grow her own cannabis for research. And at that point, the United States had the what was called the NIDA monopoly. And I say was because it, it very recently changed. But the NIDA monopoly was that there was a single grower for cannabis in the entire United States and the University of Mississippi providing all the researchers that cannabis, and it was very low quality. And it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out what happens to your research if your product is poor. You get poor research. And this was Dr. Sisley's complaint. And so she said, you know what? I want to grow some of my own. I'll grow my own cannabis. And her idea had followed on the footsteps of the Obama administration changing a policy saying that they were going to allow 
new growers for cannabis. But then Jeff Sessions came into office, the Trump administration came in, and all of a sudden that program got stalled. So Dr. Sisley applied, but her application had been stalled out by two and a half years. I took the issue back to a colleague at the firm I work at now, Yetter Coleman LLP, where I'm a partner, and I discussed the problem with him. He's an administrative law guru. And then we filed a lawsuit against DEA, and ultimately there were a series of lawsuits, changed the entire national federal policy on research cannabis, for that matter. The NIDA monopoly went away. There is no more NIDA monopoly anymore. There are now, I believe, six growers of, of cannabis for research. And then, you know, that kind of introduced me to people who are working in the space and other interesting problems. And, and since then, I've been a part of a number of lawsuits against DEA. I'm fighting a lawsuit right now here in Texas regarding smokable hemp. So now I am not just an IP litigator. I also handle these thorny issues with controlled substances. And currently, I'm working now on a, a project with these five tryptamines at the DEA. And this has all been in the past sort of three years. Yep. And so do you have a overall philosophy that's guiding your strategy in these lawsuits? Like, what do you ultimately believe that you're advocating for? I believe there is a fundamental misinterpretation about the Controlled Substances Act. So so this was an act that was enacted in, in 1970. Very few people alive today were around and adults when this thing was being enacted in the height of the war on drugs. When you go back and you look at all the history of this act, it talks about it in very different terms from the way we're, we interact with it today, right? The people who drafted this act, there's a lawyer named Michael Sonnenreich, very interesting guy who, after he's working at DEA, goes and works for the Sacklers and Purdue and whatnot. But he's like one of the main guys who drafts this. And like John Dean in the Nixon administration, Ingersoll, who's the first head of the agency that precedes DEA, they're talking about this, this legislation, this Controlled Substances Act, in very different terms. And specifically, it was a law that was about drug abuse. And it was supposed to be this flexible thing where the law enforcement would like move things up and down the schedules based on what's actually being abused and giving them a lot more tools. You, you fast forward 50 years and we've got this very different animal and it's very pharmaceuticalized, right? And, and so kind of one of my pet obsessions is this idea that somehow marijuana has no currently accepted medical use in the United States. And, and wh- why does DEA say that? Well, when you dig into the papers, it turns out for basically like decades, they insist that it requires FDA approval. And that's, that, that's the second point that I really want to get at, which is the Controlled Substances Act was not supposed to be this pipeline for pharma products that the only way something had an accepted medical use would be if it got FDA approval. And what's happened is basically regulatory capture with kind of the FDA and DEA and whatnot. And this is going to cause a lot of problems. We went really wrong with this. And why did we go really wrong with this? And that gets probably my third point, which is how do you fix it? Basically, you have to take it apart. It was good in theory, but in practice, it just doesn't work. And there are sort of basic reasons why. I mean, why, having a law enforcement agency in charge of creating criminal laws is just a, a completely backwards concept that you would never see in any other area of law except drugs. And I believe that at all sort of areas of society, it's you're talking about drugs and all of a sudden rationality goes out the window. I like to say that this we have a drug problem, but it's not people doing drugs. It's that whenever the topic of drugs comes up, different standards, different rules apply. And, and that's not fair. 
that's not fair. And so I'm out there fighting for fairness, trying to convince judges and people that, yeah, drugs probably aren't that good in a lot of situations, but we need to think level-headed about this and have neutral principles apply. So you mentioned at some point that these agencies get away with things that other agencies may not get away with. And by agencies, I'm, I'm guessing it's uh, FDA and DEA. And so I was trying to think through what are the motivations of these agencies? Like, what are, what are they trying to achieve? Which things they're getting away with that maybe it's not for, quote unquote, the public good? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, I actually think I mean, we can start with DEA, certainly the agency I litigate against most these days. And I think they actually catch some unfair criticism. I'm not sure that everything they do is in bad faith or bad spirits or against the drug community or psychedelics community or whatnot. I mean, some of it is just kind of like practice, like you make mistakes when you don't do it very often. So whereas the EPA or the FDA, they do a lot of this, this regulatory work, you know, The DEA is primarily a law enforcement agency. So this idea that there would even be a legal industry of controlled substances, I mean, there's always been a legal industry of controlled substances. You have, you've had amphetamines around for a while. You've had opiates around for a while. But generally speaking, this whole like psychedelics, cannabis thing like hasn't been around very often and they don't really have that much experience compared to other agencies. So they make mistakes. So I'm not persuaded everything they do is kind of with animus or, you know, they are at the end of the day trying to do their job and they believe in their mission. That said, I, at least in a few of the litigations I've been in, I mean, there's been an element of this is not, this is not above board. I mean, the, the, what I was doing with Dr. Sisley, uh, the, the, them just not even ruling on these applications and just holding, I mean, that was not above board. It was, they were trying to sabotage a program and they were just not willing to be held accountable for it in court. And, you know, it's, it's why, why do they do it? I mean, you know, it's kind of like a, it's like a relationship where people have, don't have, don't set boundaries. Right. I mean, it's, you know, you, if you can get away with it, you do get away with it. So, I mean, maybe there's that, you know, FDA is, is a completely different beast and they're different motivations over on the FDA side of things. I mean, FDA is the most powerful regulatory agency in the world. And it's actually, you know, one of the incredible statistics about FDA is more than 50% of their money comes from the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, just pause to think about that for a moment. I mean, it's on their website. Like, this is not something that requires, like, deep studying. It, it has to do with a, a bill that was passed. I think it was in the, the first Bush administration, the H.W. Bush administration, where it's the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, where FDA was running out of manpower to evaluate applications and there, there's too much time to evaluate these applications. And so Congress and the president passed a law which said, collect money from your industry and hire more people. It seemed like a great idea at first, but now you're kind of, now you have this revolving door of people going from pharma to the FDA to pharma, and that has a lot of consequences. And I think we're seeing a lot of them today in how they approve drugs, which drugs they approve, whose drugs go through fastest, whose don't. I don't think it's a coincidence that Alzheimer's drug Aldehelm goes right through the FDA and some psychedelic medicine seems to be having a lot of trouble getting through. Matt, you mentioned that this idea that today the way to prove medical use is going through the FDA and doing clinical trials. What I'm getting from your point is that there's different systems that are not in place, at least in the U.S. And I would love for you to talk about what those systems or processes would look like. I don't have a proposal for an alternative system. I'll start with cannabis, which is just like, just look around. 
I mean, just wake up and, and look around. I mean, the, the day that you can, in more than half the country, drive down, get a recommendation from your doctor, a medical recommendation, and go down to a dispensary and buy it for a medical condition that you have, that's acceptance. I mean, I remember in high school, I took a, a course called Theory of Knowledge, and there was like seven different ways you can know things. And one of them is, is science and experimenting and empiricism. But, you know, there's also just popular acceptance. Like people in their daily life, there are enough people who have accepted this, who understand the benefits of it, that we don't need randomized control trials to know that this stuff has medical use and treatment. Look, Eastern medicine's been around for a long time. There have been indigenous cultures that have had medicine around for a long time. And if a state like Oregon, if they choose to view medicine differently, just like every culture around the world has its own tweaks on medicine, why is the federal government coming in and saying, you can't, that, that's not medicine? I mean, that, that to me is the core objection here. And that, that's, it gets back to sort of my point about the pharmaceuticalization, which maybe another spin on that is, why is DEA in the business of determining what has an accepted medical use or not? That's a criteria, maybe. I mean, you could argue that maybe that shouldn't be a criteria at all for whether they should schedule drugs or not. That's part of the problem, right, is we're not ranking drugs based on how abusive they are. It's If it has no accepted medical use, it goes in Schedule 1. If it does, then let's have a conversation. But why is law enforcement doing that anyway? And then this gets back to my historical point, which is because we've interpreted this act the wrong way. I mean, it, it just never occurred to people in 1970 that you would have a situation where more than half the country would have cannabis as medicine, but it would still be in Schedule 1. And so what that part of the Controlled Substances Act was meant to be was not actually this grant of authority to DEA to determine when something has an accepted medical use. It was actually supposed to be a limitation on authority saying, if people have accepted this as having a medical use, you can't put this in Schedule 1. And, and so we've made that completely backwards. People have different norms that they subscribe to, and our country is a laboratory of democracy, and we shouldn't be having this sort of top-down conversation as to what is accepted medical use. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that a few times cannabis and there is something to be said about cannabis being a plant medicine and some people categorize it all also within psychedelics. I'm curious to get your perspective whether the paradigm for psychedelics will be similar or different than the paradigm for cannabis. That is a great question and the paradigms are going to be very different. And let me let me start taking that apart. I think the the most basic point is cannabis is a plant that has a lot of cannabinoids. And to the extent you want to take whole plant cannabis through the FDA approval process, you're dealing with a botanical medicine. And that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder because FDA has very stringent what's called CGMP criteria, current good manufacturing practices. You have to grow same consistency of a cannabis plant and you have to do that with, I think, 12 cycles of growth. And this is even if you're going to make an extract. Psychedelics, you don't have that because you're dealing with molecules and molecules are molecules. And you have to have good manufacturing practices for a molecule, but it's a lot easier to do. So in that sense, psychedelic medicine has a much brighter future than cannabis, right? I mean, as far as medicine is concerned and getting it through the FDA process. But I think that there are other issues, though, that if you had to boil it down into a soundbite, it's Psychedelic medicine, it's actually closer to conventional pharma than cannabis with one sort of 
giant exception, which is psychedelic medicine is trying to cure people, or it's kind of like interventional style medicine where you take it once or twice. And, you know, conventional pharma, whether it's antidepressants or any other type of medicine is you take a pill a day and, you know, from now until for a while. So there's an ongoing revenue stream. So the business models are different. And here, here's what I would focus on. It's a less discussed problem between cannabis and psychedelics. And it's about the legal issues and, and, and something I think people need to really focus on right now. See, the cannabis movement gets off the ground because of the, there's this landmark case. It's called Conant versus Walters. It's probably the most important legal case about cannabis, maybe drug law ever. It's a Ninth Circuit case. It's not a Supreme Court case. It's litigated by Graham Boyd at the ACLU. And the bottom line is that's the case that allows doctors to recommend cannabis to patients. It's a super important case because doctors recommending cannabis is why medicinal cannabis was able to grow, right? If the doctors aren't able to, to recommend this cannabis, then this never really kind of gets started. Medicinal cannabis has actually been around for a long time. It's been around since the 70s, and there were limited, really narrow programs. But this this is the, the case that kind of, because it, it also kind of crowds out the federal government. It's also the case, however, that kind of sets up this weird paradigm where a doctor is recommending cannabis, but they're not giving it to you. And you go down to the dispensary and you buy cannabis and use it for, you know, it's not a prescription. You're not getting a reimbursed. You're not going to insurance. And so this paradigm grows. And then we have the, the government's non-enforcement policy, which started off as a Department of Justice policy of just we're not going to arrest people for doing this and grew into Congress passing these spending riders. And in the meantime, marijuana is still a Schedule One substance. There are still people getting kicked out of housing for it. And the reason why is because it's not being criminally enforced, but it's being enforced at the periphery of law. In other words, it's still a Schedule One substance. It's still illegal. So why did I go into this sort of long background of a cannabis? It's because it's never going to work with psychedelics. These state legalizations isn't going to fix the issues with psychedelics the way it kind of fixes the issue with cannabis. It's just going to be a fundamentally different paradigm you know, and, and we'll see what happens. The good news is, right, that FDA approval is going to come for psychedelics way before it comes for cannabis. So this is not going to be like people are going to be left out in the cold, not able to get it. The question is kind of, you know, you're only going to be able to get it from maps. You're only going to be able to get it from Compass. You're only going to be able to get it from USANA legally. And if you want to get it illegally, you can do that too. One of the questions I'm really curious about is how you then see the DEA engaging with psychedelic companies once they get FDA approval? Yeah. So that's a good question. If, if a company has FDA approval, DEA has to reschedule the drug that got approved by the FDA. DEA historically hasn't rescheduled the substance. They've rescheduled the drug. So let's say psilocybin the Compass, whatever they call it, Comp 360 gets approved. Comp 360 will get rescheduled. Psilocybin will probably get left behind. And then there has to be a relationship between the company, Compass, and DA. It'll be in one of the schedules, Schedule 1, 2, 3, 4. Probably it will be in Schedules 2 or 3. If it's in Schedule 2, then there are going to be quotas, manufacturing quotas, and how much of this can be made. So you have to work with your regulator. And, you know, I imagine that it'll be a decent relationship. I mean, DA has relationships with pharmaceutical companies. It's going to, I think it's going to be a lot like that, the relationships they have with, you know, uh, Shire, which makes Adderall. 
you know, it's going to be a regulator, regulatee relationship. And I have no reason to believe that DA is going to treat FDA approved psychedelic medicine any differently than is treated any other medicine. So, you know, I don't I don't think that there should be sort of cause for concern there. I think, frankly, people should be probably more concerned about the FDA side of the coin when it comes to psychedelic medicine. How come? Yeah, so so what what's going on now is this concept called REMS. It's risk mitigation strategies. There's a legislation which basically says that if FDA deems a particular medicine too risky to be approved without certain safeguards, they have the authority to require certain safeguards be taken with the administration or dispensing of a medicine. And you you know, with Spravato, the esketamine nasal inhaler, that has REMS on it. And, you know, it has REMS associated with the administration of it in an office. So, you know, you're never going to see, well, at least right now, you're not going to see Spravato as ketamine inhalers get mailed out, which is, you know, interesting because ketamine is getting mailed out. So you would think that for something that is supposedly better, equivalent, whatever, that they would be able to do it, but they can't. And that's because when the FDA approved the drug, they added a risk mitigation strategy. So I fully expect psychedelic medicine to fit into this paradigm. And this is an FDA restriction. It is not a DEA restriction. Here, it's really kind of, you know, the FDA is going to require that you have all of these safeguards. And maybe rightly or wrongly, I express no opinion of it whatsoever. Just saying that if you're worried about restrictions, it's going to be on the FDA side of the coin, not the DEA side of the coin. And so you shouldn't really schedule two versus, I mean, look, schedule two, like Adderall schedule two. So you, you schedule two is not a sort of this evil beast. It just means that, you, you know, you can't, you, you can't get prescriptions refilled out of state. You have to get monthly refills. Not a problem for psychedelic medicine. I think psychedelic medicine will be fine if everything is in schedule two. Could you give a quick rundown of like schedule one on down in terms of what the regulations are based on each level? Oh, sure. There are three criteria to be in Schedule 1. It has a high potential for abuse. That's that's A. B is no currently accepted medical use. And C is a lack of accepted safety under supervision. In practice, B and C are the same thing. If it hasn't been approved by the FDA, it's not going to meet the criteria for either. Schedule 2 is A is a high potential for abuse. B is there is a currently accepted medical use or a currently accepted medical use with severe restrictions. And then three is like high likelihood of, of physical or psychological dependence. I think that's what it is. And then you, as you work your way down, it's just kind of dial the factors down a little bit. Th- this is why methamphetamine is in schedule two and marijuana is in schedule one. Every time I see Congress grill some DEA chief over, you know, why is marijuana in schedule one and methamphetamine in, in schedule two? I want to join the DEA on this one. Like, I, I want to sit next to them and, and, and you know, argue with, with the Congress. Like, it's because marijuana has no accepted medical use. Now, the penalties and the regulatory requirements correspond to the schedules. So the stiffest ones are in one. The laxest ones are in five. Schedule one can't be prescribed as medicine. Can't do anything except research. Schedule two, you can prescribe it as medicine, but you have quotas. So schedule one and schedule two drugs have quotas. When you look at the structure of the schedules, there's basically two groups. There's Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 drugs, and Schedule 3 through Schedule 5 drugs. There's two groups. The 1 and 2 have the security requirements. They have the quotas. They're, they're nearly identical across the board, except 
Schedule one drugs cannot be prescribed and schedule two drugs can. Schedules three through five for there are differences, but they're they're basically like not significant. A schedule three drug, I mean, an example is benzodiazepines. Some of them are in schedule three, some of them are in schedule four. I don't know which ones are in schedule three or schedule four because it frankly just doesn't make a difference. So it's really what you're looking at is schedule one, schedule two, and schedule three and below is kind of the way to think about the regulatory requirements. Got it. And just to clarify, your point is that, you know, if MAPS were to get approval for MDMA-assisted therapy, MDMA would still be scheduled as a Schedule 1, but it would be MAPS's MDMA that would be rescheduled. That's what I expect will, will happen, yes. Yeah. Can you also speak to any precedents that come to mind of scheduled compounds that were rescheduled once the FDA approved them? Yeah, the best example is dronabinol, synthetic THC, and then Marinol. There's actually this great sentence that Mason Marks wrote. It's a 2018 NYU article. Mason Marks works at Poplar, Harvard Institute that was just started to study psychedelics. It's something along the lines of, depending on whether dronabinol is by itself in alcohol or suspended in sesame oil, it's in schedules one, two, or three. It's a brilliant sentence, and it just shows you how loony things are, which is, yeah, the FDA-approved version that's in sesame oil is in three, the FDA-approved version that's in alcohol is in two, and the molecule itself is in one. I mean, it doesn't make much sense. I know what DEA's rationale is behind that, which is, well, when it's in sesame oil, it's less likely to be abused because it's in sesame oil. I don't find that to be very persuasive. There's, there's total illogic to these things of what schedules they're in. So one of the challenges in cannabis has been banking for cannabis companies because they're illegal federally. Do you foresee something similar happening to FDA-approved companies that are in the psychedelic space? A great question. I mean, and that, that actually is a difference between Schedule 2 and Schedule 3, right? This two, 280E problem, and you know, just to give that some context, is 280E, the tax law, whether you can take a, a deduction for business expenses, cannabis companies can't do that because it's a Schedule 1 drug. Nothing would change if it were moved to Schedule 2. If it's moved to Schedule 3, 280E is lifted. So we're talking about psychedelics. I guess there's a difference between Schedule 2 and Schedule 3 in that sense. But to answer your question head on, I think the answer is is no, because if you're operating with FDA-approved medicine and it's in Schedule 2, then, it, then it's just going to be totally legal. Where the picture gets complicated is, you know, what happens when you want to take when you're a company and you're doing legal things and you also want to take part in the illegal things. So, you know, let's say you're a NASDAQ-traded company that wants to get your clinics in to Oregon and work with psilocybin. How's that going to work? And let's say you're also trying to take one of your drugs through the FDA process. You can't do that in the same company. So you're going to need to split your company and have one company that's going to develop the drug that's separate from the company that's going to operate sort of clinics off the books. And the company that's operating clinics off the books isn't going to be traded on NASDAQ. From the FDA's perspective, what criteria do they look for when making the decision to approve or deny a new medicine? And where does psychedelic medicine fit into that model? Yeah. So look, on a legal level, the very basic thing is it has to be safe and it has to be effective. 
has to be proven safe. It has to be proven effective. 1906 was the first law that gave the federal government authority to regulate medicine, but the safety and efficacy requirements come around in 1962. So you have to prove something is safe and something is effective. There's this kind of third criteria that's not actually like written down in sort of the same basic terms. And that is, are you trying to treat something where there isn't really anything good out there to treat? Typically, you have to do three phases of clinical trials before it gets approved. And sometimes there's a phase four, which is clinical trials after it's been approved. It's like after it's already out there in the market. Drug manufacturers almost never do this because what's the point? Once it's out in the market, like what incentive do you have to keep doing clinical trials? You have to show it's safe and it's got to be randomized controlled trials with decent sized patient populations. And the patient size population kind of depends on what your condition you're looking at. Obviously, rare conditions, you can't go you know, there aren't going to be a thousand people with a certain orphan drug condition. Orphan drugs are drugs to treat rare conditions. But, you know, that, that's what the FDA is looking for. And they're, they're looking for data. You can play with the data. And these phar- pharma companies are, are good with their, their data. And they're good at able to, in getting the data to where it needs to be. But what FDA is looking for is the data showing it's safe, it's efficacious. And what is it that you're trying to do? And that kind of is what frustrates me with psychedelic medicine is, I think it's I think it's been shown to be safe. It's shown to be effective. And we're treating things like suicidal depression and PTSD. I mean, what's the holdup? I, I, I'm not one of I don't I'm not one of the lawyers who's like working on the approval stuff. So I, I'm not in the room and I can't tell you. But it, it does kind of upset me when I see good data drugs getting held up probably because they're psychedelics. I don't know. Psychedelic therapy is going to be a paradigm shift. That's for sure. It's just not conventional. It's, it's conventional pharma in one sense, but it's completely unconventional in another. Do you have any thoughts around what psychedelic companies can do to increase the likelihood of their approval? Yeah, I mean, be like a pharma company. I mean, you know, if, if I mean, I say that both like good and bad. I mean, you know, there's, and I say that also as like, for instance, a lawyer who's worked at a big firm. I mean, big companies, you know, they're efficient, they're predictable, they are, you know, standard. And so the FDA, they kind of, they know who they're dealing with. There's trust there. And so it's not like a, a a bad thing, right? Make sure your paperwork's all in order. I mean, you know, plug for myself or other lawyers out there, but make sure you've got a good legal team. I mean, make sure you're in people you're interfacing with the FDA, because that's what the pharma companies come with. They come with war chests. You know, the other thing is make sure there's no unforced errors, right? I mean, it's kind of like you, you can't control everything. You can't Certainly, you know, you shouldn't be trying to manipulate your data. I would never advise a company manipulate your data so you get approval. But you can do things like, you know, make sure that you don't make unforced errors with the way you conduct your clinical trials. I I do believe that the FDA will approve drugs that are shown to be safe, efficacious to treat conditions that require medicine. Even though I think there's a lot of regulatory capture, I don't think that the FDA is sort of going to hold back good medicine. What they will hold back is they'll hold back good medicine if they don't think that the controls are, are kind of necessary for it to be safe and effective out in the wild. Let's jump for a few minutes around IP. And so I'm curious about this dynamic that's going on right now in this psychedelic medicine space where there's multiple companies pursuing psilocybin for different indications. And so... What will this look like once these companies go through phase two, phase three trials and show kind of like, or submit an NDA to the FDA? 
in the sense that, I mean, obviously you have to pick an indication, you have to study it, and you have to show it's safe and effective for that indication. But historically, once once a drug is improved for one indication, doctors can prescribe it for other indications. And so, you know, what I've always thought is pick the indication that's most likely to get through the FDA. Try to get it through on one thing and then, you know, doctors can use it for whatever. But, you know, I, the different indications, I mean, part of that has to do with the IP, which you started the question with, right? I mean, you can't get patents on psilocybin or, I mean, you know, Maybe you can. Compass got it on some crystal formulation. But but basic psilocybin, like the molecule, I mean, the classic psychedelics, there's no molecule discovery happening. I mean, mescaline has been around since, you know, the 19th century as an isolate. Obviously, indigenous cultures have been using these medicines for a long time. MDMA was Merck way back when, isolated it. LSD, all, all the classics are are so far off patent. So what do you do? Because, you know, patents get kind of a bad rap in this space or kind of misunderstood in this space. And, you know, I am an IP litigator. Basically, these companies are getting patents so they can raise capital because they need to recoup their R&D investment. And the way you do that is you get proprietary rights so that when your drug comes on the market, you don't have to compete. That's the way pharma works. It doesn't have to work that way necessarily, but that's just kind of the way it works today. And when to, so to get these patents, what companies are doing is they're getting method patents, methods of treating conditions with certain dosage ranges or delivery mechanisms. You basically have to spin the psychedelic by adding something novel to it. So you're not getting a patent on psilocybin. You're getting a method of administering psilocybin between doses X and X to treat why that that's the S ketamine patents, which I've, I've looked at. I mean, that that's what they are. It's it's S ketamine was isolated in Germany in like the nineties. So it's not a new, it wasn't a new molecule to the extent there was anything novel and non-obvious about what the Johnson and Johnson subsidiary did Janssen pharmaceuticals with S ketamine. It was to put it in an intranasal form, like form like intranasal or the dosage. So so when you're building this paradigm of, oh, well, you've got to spin IP and you've got to get methods of treating certain conditions, people are going for those indications, right? I mean, you're getting a, a patent on a method for treating depression. That means that that's your indication when you go forward with the, the, the clinical trials. The other motivation for switching indications uh, of getting different indications is insurance. And insurance doesn't always cover off-label use. I mean, they don't cover off-label ketamine. They, they do sometimes. They'll cover off-label sometimes, but sometimes they won't. If you do get an indication approved, insurance, I mean, they're private companies. They don't have to cover anything, but but they basically will. So companies are motivated because, you know, getting covered by insurance makes, you know, particularly Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, for most pharma companies, that's like the lifeblood of their, their drug. You, you sometimes can't even be profitable if you don't have Medicare. They're not going to cover an expensive procedure that's off-label. So, you know, I think that getting different indications, you know, is actually, it might not be in every sense the most capitalistic thing to do because you can get off-label and doctors can do it. But it actually is an interesting like equity issue of, well, making it more accessible for other conditions because insurance will cover it. So, I mean, there are a lot of different motivations for going for going for different indications.
Mm-hmm. You talked about the classic psychedelics and you briefly touched on NCEs, right? So what we've observed is that the first group of companies that have been going through FDA are working with classic psychedelics and pairing that with psychotherapy. A few of those companies have received breakthrough therapy designation and are now in late stage, phase two, phase three clinical trials. And now uh, we're starting to see companies developing new chemical entities forming and would love your perspective around the viability and pathway for those types of companies? 100% viable. I mean, th- this is this is where, like, if you're fabulously wealthy and have a lot of money, first of all, I'd, I'd like some of it. I'll, I'll send you my routing number and we, we can we can exchange contact info. But no, but seriously, if, if you know, th- that I think is is kind of where, where you're looking to make an investment because the current therapies or these, these current classic psychedelics are imperfect and imperfect in really consequential ways, right? You know, a lot of people love LSD. It's a great, great trip. A lot of people love MDMA. Can't have a bad experience on it. I'm not talking about the trip, right? I mean, LSD is a long duration, right? Like eight to 12 hours. MDMA, it's a little shorter. Four to six hours is what, you know, what the label is going to say. And that's not too long. You know, you could take it, you know, by the end of the day, you'll go to bed or whatnot. But that's a long time for a doctor to sit in an office and do therapy with you. That's a really long time, four to six hours. And so that caused MAPS and, and frankly, I think it's going to, it's causing a lot of companies a lot of difficulty. I mean, it's, it's a hard therapeutic model because there aren't enough doctors out there who want to spend four to six hours of their day doing MDMA therapy. There are some, but if you're talking about widespread adoption of this among the sort of psychiatrists, that's a real problem. And so, you know, is you know, was it Huey Lewis in the news had a song called "You Know I Want a New Drug"? I mean, we need a, we need a new drug. I mean, we need one that that's quicker. That's you know, you get one to two hours of of space, and you take it maybe one to two more times. There are other thing other aspects of MDMA that aren't great, right? There's it depletes your serotonin. Maybe maybe you can get the same effect without depleting serotonin, you know, psilocybin, you know, nausea, and, and maybe there's a, an analog that doesn't have nausea. So, you know, right now, one of the legal battles I'm fighting is at the DEA with these five tryptamines. And the reason, you know, I believe in this and the reason I'm doing it, I mean, I'm representing two, you know, amazing companies that are trying to work on this sort of second second generation psychedelics is because the, the current ones, they're good, but they can be a hell of a lot better in terms of not just efficacy, but kind of just usability. I mean, these aren't, you know, four to six hours. It's just a long time. And and the reason I keep saying MD, right? MAPS MAPS is trying to open up their their program to include, you know, trained therapists who aren't MDs. And, you know, how do you make the FDA more comfortable with this? I mean, one of the ways would be only licensed MDs can administer it, right? Like all other prescription drugs or most other, I mean, PAs can write prescriptions under some, some states, PhDs can, but basically like, you know, imagine if it were just MDs, right? If you don't have enough doctors willing to do it, then you're kind of like, you know, up the creek, so to speak, and you've got to work. And then, and now you're dealing with a different problem with FDA. So second generation medicines to me, psychedelic medicines, are huge. One, because you can get better effect profiles. Two, because you can shorten the duration. And three, maybe you'll find an actual better drug. I mean, for all we know, 2CB is is better than MDMA. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. I think that second generation is, is really important. When will we see a recreational market for psychedelics? 
if you're talking about kind of a robust, like open market where everything is legal, I'm not buying the 2035 predictions. Let me put it that way. What is the 2035 prediction? I think, you know, I think some people think that legalization is going to follow medicalization. And I don't think that is, I, I think that people, again, are looking to the cannabis playbook and saying, this is what's going to happen with psychedelics. I'm not subscribing to that. In fact, legalization with cannabis hasn't followed medicalization. Like medicalization, like California was 96. Here we are. It's still federally illegal. So 25 years later. So if, if, if you're, if you're, Following that timeline and legalization and medicalization is happening now in 2025, 25 years from then is 2050. So, you know, hopefully before I, I kick the bucket, who was it on his deathbed said LSD and Elvis that? Huxley. That was Huxley, right? Yeah. So hopefully I'm, I'm maybe I'm able to do that or maybe not. So you are currently challenging the DEA around their decision to schedule five new tryptamines. Walk me through how you understand the DEA decided to make that decision and where you think that decision is not the right one? So, you know, I am always careful when I talk about kind of pending matters. What appears to have happened in the early or mid-2000s, there was something called Operation Web Trip, where it was a, a few research chemical vendors got busted for selling tryptamine analogs of, you know, analogs of psilocybin or other tryptamines that are on the schedules. So the way the Analog Act works is analogs are illegal and treated as Schedule One substances when they're sold for human consumption. But when they're not sold for human consumption, i.e. research chemicals or bath salts or whatever, you know, term you come up with, they're not illegal. So in Operation Web Trip, there were a bunch of research chemicals that got confiscated in these companies and whatnot. And the DEA went and in 2008 asked for an evaluation from the Health and Human Services on these tryptamines, I think. And HHS did a workup and sent an evaluation to DEA in 2012. And DEA didn't do anything for nine years with that evaluation. And then all of a sudden, amidst the psychedelic renaissance where people are studying NCEs and you know, things a little bit off the beaten path, like these five tryptamines, none of which are classic psychedelics, they decide to put them in Schedule 1. And the rationale is a very, very simplistic argument. And it's something that, you know, people in the space, I mean, th this is a case that people should be paying attention to. This is a really, really important case. It's part of the reason I'm involved in it, and I'm not trying to upsell it, but this is the logic that they're using. Hallucinogens are bad. These drugs are like LSD. LSD is in Schedule 1. These drugs aren't approved. Therefore, these drugs go in Schedule 1. That's the entire argument. And, and, if you, and if you internalize that, just pick whatever NCE you want that has any sort of psychedelic effect that's structurally similar to something on Schedule 1, and you are now right here. You are smack dab in, in DA can put it into Schedule 1. The point is, these NCEs that are alike things on Schedule 1, if you, you know, might end up on Schedule 1. And in case in point, one of the five tryptamines is 4-hydroxydipty. 4-DAs is OH, but most people say 4-HO-DIPT. They documented four instances, four, of quote-unquote abuse. Abuse is defined as anytime someone takes a drug without a prescription for its effects. Four. Since 2009, so over a decade, four people used this, and that's what they... That's, they're considering that to have a high potential for abuse. And because 4-hydroxydipty hasn't been approved, 
and because it has effects that it and and how do they show by the way this is interesting how 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 do they know it has effects a lot like LSD or I think in in the, this analysis they compare it to DOM drug discrimination studies with rats they train rats to pull levers and they you know they say well it's got activity on the 5H2 HT2A receptor therefore it's a lot like all other hallucinogens therefore it's dangerous therefore it goes on schedule 1 i mean this is this is troubling reasoning but but the most troublesome aspect of it is again that the time delay between when this this evaluation came out in 2012 and then that they picked it up in you know 2021 amidst the psychedelic renaissance and decided to put in schedule 1 and there are reasons for that that I, I can't go into right mm-hmm. now, but yeah. something that you know I, I would be watch. I would be watching. Yeah, I mean it, it's worth noting though that for for hydroxy dipti, Shulgin did test it, and Shulgin did write his own trip reports on it, and the way that he describes it does sound very similar to some other tryptamines. I, you know, one report I was reading on it said that it takes 15 minutes for the, the effects to set in. There is an intensity that produces a transcendent peak experience. There is a two to three hour duration. So I guess where my mind goes is like, if it is similar-ish to existing psychedelic compound, couldn't there also then be the case that it should be bucketed with the rest of them? Based on your description, it sounds like the better mousetrap that we were talking about earlier, right? Of we need something that's shorter acting, but capable of producing sort of the same experience. And hence why the same company that divided itself is the drug that they're just, you know, it's a pro drug of, of 4-hydroxydipti. Yeah. So, I mean, that again is the val- the, what's going on here and why we shouldn't be holding back the second. You know, it took, took MAPS forever to get MDMA through. I mean, it started in the 90s. I mean, again, all the credit in the world. I mean, the perseverance to be able to work through insane bureaucracies and and prejudices to get that research through. And frankly, they didn't take any outside money for the longest time, except in the form of donations. But when you're looking at the second generation, I mean, we can't have the same obstacles to research and development that we had with the first generation. It's just there's too much on the line and too much at stake. And it's just kind of unfortunate that a drug for hydroxydipti is going on schedule one, schedule one. The most important takeaway of this episode for me is how Matt confirmed that if a company has FDA approval, the DEA has to reschedule the drug that got approved by the FDA. Therefore, what this demonstrates is that there is a clear regulatory pathway for compounds like psilocybin, MDMA, and other psychedelics to be prescribable within our system. And this is a question that I get all the time, so it's nice to get confirmation from a lawyer like Matt. It's clear that Matt is a proponent for NCEs, or he considers them to be more interesting, at least from an IP perspective. But at the same time, NCEs, new chemical entities compared to the classic psychedelics, are not proven to be safe nor efficacious. And so it's still TBD if these compounds that are new, that are being developed, actually will be able to come to market. I appreciate how Matt provides a real check and balance on the government. I feel like somebody who is suing the DEA for a living is, I don't know, Matthias, what's one word to describe someone like that? Ballsy. 
Yeah, he described the DEA as the most powerful agency in the world. So I love that. That's that's a good thing to do for a living, challenging the most powerful agency in the world. I love that we kind of started the conversation about what's happening in Oregon and how the Oregon Psilocybin Initiative and this way to access psychedelics that is non-medicalized comes with a big bag of uh, issues things like banking so who will be able to give financing or how will these uh, organizations that are doing business in Oregon how will they be able to transact so we touched on that but but that's just one issue there's plenty others for example how will the psychedelic facilitators in Oregon uh, be able to access liability insurance you have psychiatrists and therapists that have liability insurance when they're practicing but those organizations will not be able to offer these policies to facilitators in Oregon. So what happens if someone trips while tripping? This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at Business Trip FM. And if you're building a company in psychedelics, or looking to get more involved in this space, email me at greg at businesstrip.fm. I'm Greg Kubin, and Business Trip was co-created by me and Matthias Serebrinsky. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time.